Will you now join me in our New Testament, New Testament scripture lesson from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Listen to the word of the Lord. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who has made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that he, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Answer by and by now 
Find a little talk with Jesus makes it right. Yes, makes it right. You know, as I was uh, listening to Ron uh, talk about uh, this uh, song that they sang, and by the way, they did a great job, I think. Um, it, it reminded me, I was just, knew he was going to say that they had to go uphill uh, uh, to the church from his grandmother's house, that two miles, uphill both ways. You know, I, I just, barefoot uh, on the rocks. Uh, at least, uh, the reason I say that is because uh, my parents, my dad was from a little tiny church in the uh, wheat growing area of Washington State. And he used to tell me how he walked a couple of miles to school every day. And it was uphill both ways in the snow. And, I mean, on and on he went until I went there and was old enough to realize that it was just this little tiny town, 300 people. You could see to the far side of town from my grandfather's house and we could see the school for more migrants. It was not even a mile. And I uh, realized at that point, he was trying to get a point across to me, and it didn't work. I, I didn't buy it for a minute. Well, we come back now uh, to looking at the book of John. Uh, remember way back when we were looking at it? Well, we're at the sixth chapter of the book of John. Before I read our scripture, just... Let me uh, share a thought. Oswald Chambers, I, I really like reading his devotional work, said this, always be in a state of expectancy and see that you leave room for God to come in as he likes. You know, we get everything set up in our mind exactly how it's supposed to be. And we won't even let God come in at times uh, as he likes so I want to challenge you, that's your New Year's resolution. Try to do that one only this year, and that would be really good. Hopefully we can last longer than 30 days. Today uh, we're going to talk a little bit about miracles. And the best place to start is to understand what a miracle is. We hear the term miracle everywhere. First of all, let me say that a fantastic fly ball catch where the ball is already over the center field wall, is not really a miracle. There are uh, expensive miracle cosmetic creams sold over the counter or on the internet. They're not miracles either. Neither is the hope-for miracle of the unprepared student at finals time. And miracle whip is not real miracle mayonnaise. I wanted to get that out because I was afraid that some of you might have mistaken Miracle Whip for some kind of a miracle. Even if you like it, I, I, I don't care whether you like it, I, it's just not a miracle. Okay, I better get out of all of that stuff and, and let me read to you our scripture. It's found in the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter. We're going to do the first 15 verses. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's the Sea of Tiberias. 
And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he'd performed on the sick. When Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples, the Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus took, uh, looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a little bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fishes. But how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw a miraculous sign uh, that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. A bunch of guys, uh, packed, we packed ourselves into a couple of our church vans and drove to the L.A. Coliseum to go to a Promise Keepers event. The Coliseum could hold over 90,000 people uh, if you opened the field for seating well, it was more. Uh, this was a sold-out event for men from all over the country. They came to hear some of the biggest names in Christianity speak uh, into their lives about being godly men husbands and fathers. One of the things that impressed me most was how the organizers of the event fed. There were over 70,000 men there. Can you imagine 70,000 men in a stadium not there to watch a football game? And we sat and, and we, we chanted back and forth. We got bored waiting because you sit and wait a long time. And, and, we, and we would say, we love Jesus, how about you? And we'd point to the other side of the stadium and then they'd take it up and they would do it and then they'd point back to us. We love Jesus, how about you? And 70,000 men, we did it. Uh, and it was amazing to feel that you weren't alone. See, for many of us, we, we are in a church and we know the people in our church, and, and but we feel Gosh, I wish there were more people out there that believe the same way I do. There are. And, uh, and, and that was one of the, the key things that, that really spoke to the men in my church, was that we weren't alone. I mean, 70,000 men gathered. It was rowdy. It was fun. And we learned a lot. One of the things that impressed me was how the organizers 
fed those 70,000 men. We had multiple food lines in which we picked up a box lunch uh, and, and, then, and then walked to the end of the thing and got either a bottle of water or a can of soda pop. And, and then we found a place just to sit wherever we could sit. Inside the box lunch was a sandwich, a bag of chips, and an apple. And then we had the water or the, the pop. I was sitting there eating my lunch and I started to think about having to organize something like that. That's just the way my brain works. I have to figure out how something like this can be pulled off. And the goal of feeding 70,000 men in 90 minutes, pretty amazing. Someone had to buy the food months in advance on faith that they'd have enough money at the time of the event to pay the, uh, the, the people off. Uh, they had to find someone to make all of those sandwiches. And if I remember right, it was Subway that made them. They'd have to have every single Subway in the greater L.A. area making sandwiches. Thousands of employee hours to fulfill this order. I have no idea how many Subways were there back then, but not more than 20 uh, in the greater uh, L.A. area. Which means that if uh, they had that 20 Subways... Each subway would have to make 3,400 sandwiches for the day. In case you're wondering what I do with my time uh, the week, uh, during the week in the office, I figure out stuff like that. I'm a little weird that way, but then you already know that. I've been here long enough. Someone had to fold the boxes and someone had to bring the food from where it was prepared to the site and dozens of volunteers then packed the boxes, put them in refrigerator units uh, so that they could be safe to eat. And then we brought them out, 29 pallets containing 2,400 cans of soda and water would have to be transported and kept cold and ready for lunch. 70,000 apples and various bags of chips be delivered. Oh yeah, and don't forget, there was a cookie inside each box too. Then there was the cleanup, and it was monstrous to see how much piled up. I mean, the trash cans just went to overflow uh, immediately. But they did it. They separated the recycling out of the trash, and they, they, it all went on without a hitch. Because there was great leadership within the Promise Keepers organization. Keep in mind that the planning uh, it took uh, and the logistics to pull this off, well, think about those things as we look at our scripture passage today. Sometimes we look at the historical accounts in the Bible and think that God organizes things on the fly instead of seeing God's sovereign plan at work within the confines of the story. This event from John 6 is certainly miraculous. Takes a poor boy's lunch and uses it to feed 5,000 men. And if you consider the women and the children that were most certainly there, well, that number increases probably to 20,000 or 25,000 people in the grass eating. And they ate enough to be filled. 
And then they picked up 12 basketfuls, leftovers. I'd eat those leftovers. I don't know about you, but sounds pretty good to me. Well, let's look at a few of the people that were involved. First was Philip. The disciples were not picked at random. It wasn't like Jesus grabbed the first 12 guys he knew or saw and made them disciples. The disciples were chosen in eternity past to be men who would take the gospel to their known world. Philip was one of these men. As I asked the question, why did Jesus ask Philip how he was going to feed these people? Why Philip? Why not one of the other disciples? See, Philip is not part of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He's not an accountant like Matthew, who probably could have tossed the number right off the tip of his head. He didn't use to teach uh, Doubting Thomas a lesson uh, on faith. He asked Philip, why? Turns out that we're in the area of Bethsaida, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's Philip's hometown. The majority of the disciples were from the western side of Galilee, and he would have been their local expert in this area. Philip knows the local prices of what things cost and where the Subway sandwich shops were. He would give a quick and accurate estimate on the sheer impossibility of feeding that many people. God, in his sovereignty, made sure that Jesus had these particular men to be his disciples in order to maximize effectiveness of the gospel message. So what does this mean for you and me? Now I want you to hear this because this is a really an important teaching point. God's sovereignty is still at work. And he calls and ensures that the right people are in the right place at the right time. And I believe that's true. And when it's true, it means that you're not in this church, in this area by accident. You're part of God's sovereign plan to see the kingdom of God advance in this area. We elevate the apostles to a place we think we can never uh, go to. But if you believe that, I believe you miss the point of God using these men and women. They're examples for us to motivate us into action. They're just like you and me. I mean, if you look at the apostles from uh, the modern church planting perspective, you'd never choose any of them to help you plan a new church. They failed more than they succeeded during their time uh, with Jesus on earth. Yet God used them anyway. Right where they were, despite their issues, despite their lack of faith, despite their desires for fame and personal ambition, God used them. And if God could use these guys... Men that our modern church would consider unfit for service in the kingdom of God. What's your excuse for not serving God? He can and will 
use you. You're part of God's plan. Now, I, I, I want you to repeat after me because I think this is important. I'm part of God's plan. Would you repeat that? I think you just said that to appease me. Let's say it again like we mean it. I am part of God's plan. And we are. We're part of God's plan. If you simply believe that, then you need to prepare for God to open up heaven over your life. There's just nothing more thrilling than seeing God work in your life and in the lives of those who you touch. Secondly, we need to look at a person named Andrew. Andrew comes center stage in John only three times. He's insignificant that in this text, it identifies him by saying he's Simon Peter's brother. What's so remarkable to me is that every time we see Andrew, he's introducing people to Jesus. That's what he's good at. And on this occasion, he introduces to Jesus a small boy with a sack lunch. He introduces a boy to Jesus. Maybe that's your skill. Maybe that's the gift that God has given you, to introduce people to Jesus. You didn't didn't share the Roman road of glory. You didn't do the four spiritual laws with them. You just introduced them to Jesus. I don't know about you, but but I can do that. You can do that. Introducing people to Jesus just means, hey, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus that I've experienced and come to my church and you'll experience that kind of experience too. Introducing people to Jesus. Well, thirdly, there's the little boy with his sack lunch. Mom didn't know what she was doing for this little kid. He must have heard that Jesus was coming and he wanted to be by Jesus. How do I know that? Because the story gives us a few hints about the boy. He must have been close enough to the disciples to hear Jesus' question to Philip. This boy made sure he had a front row seat to listen to what Jesus had to say. It's interesting to me, uh, uh, and, and I think it's a lesson that that I definitely need to learn, Jesus isn't interested in our ability, but our availability. This boy just gave what he had to help out. And Jesus used what he gave. Jesus took his lunch and blessed it, and he broke the barley loaves. Now, let me just talk a little bit about this. Barley bread is the bread of the poor. Barley grows in the Galilee region very easily. Wheat doesn't grow very well in this region. So the poor would go out and be able to pick the barley wherever they could find it. Uh, It wasn't even in fields. It was spread and scattered all over the place. And they would make bread out of that. Little cakes about that big. And the little boy had five of them and two fish. Now, we find out that somebody told us that they were sardines, not the ones in the can, okay? I just want to say this. They were probably about that long. Little fish that came out of the Sea of Galilee. And they, they were around the edge of the sea very easily. So 
he, that's his lunch. It barely would feed the little boy. But he gave it to Jesus anyways. And that's an, an amazing thing. That he gave what he had to Jesus because Jesus wanted to do something for the people around him. See, many of you are missing out on what God wants to do with you because you haven't trusted him with that that is precious with you, for you. I think maybe God is waiting for you to take the closed fist that you're holding on to the things of this world and just let go of them and give them to him. You can say, but Randy, uh, I, you don't understand how, I don't understand how God can take my talent and my treasure and my time and do anything for his kingdom. I, 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 I know this hasn't been a long sermon, but I want to close with a story because I think it's important for us. There was a little girl, it's a true story, by the way. She was sobbing on the street and, and, and the pastor of the church came by and saw her and said, what's the matter? And she said, they wouldn't let me come into Sunday school. They said they were full. And the pastor looked at the little girl and she was shabbily dressed. She, she didn't look really kept at all. And he grabbed her by the hand and said, come on, let me go with you. And he walked into Sunday school and found a place for this little girl to stay so that she could stay at Sunday school. Well, when church was over, she left and went home and, and started to think, what can I do about the boys and girls that can't come to Sunday school and know the love of Jesus? Now we leave the story there and we pick it up again two years later. And the little girl is dead in the tenement building that she had lived in. And the parents, who knew that the pastor had cared for her, asked him uh, if he would help with the service for the little girl. And he was honored to do that and went, and went to the place where the little girl was uh, before they took her away and, and found underneath her an old cracked red purse. And they opened the red purse and looked in and there was 57 cents in the red purse and a note in her handwriting. And it said, this is for the children that don't know about Jesus, that the church would be able to build a building so that they could Come to know Jesus. Pastor read it, picked it up, took it to service the next Sunday and read it to the congregation. And, and the congregation, you know, they were small. And, and, but he told, the pastor told the deacons, how, deacons or even you elders, how would you like it if I said, all right, raise enough money to build a new building so that the children in the community could come? And he just expected them to make that happen. How would you feel about that? Probably a little panicked. Uh, but that's how he did it. 
Now, I want to say to you that uh, the story doesn't end there. Newspapers picked up uh, the story, and they published it. And it was read by a realtor who offered the church a parcel of land that was worth thousands of dollars. But the church said, we, we, we can't pay that kind of money. So we offered the land to them for 57 cents. And they gave him the 57 cents and the deed to the land. Now they had the land. And that was then picked up by the newspapers and spread across not only their city, but started to spread across the eastern United States and then finally to the west. And the little girl, her gift, started a movement and the people started to respond. The church members started to write pretty good checks for the building of the new building. And people from far away started to send money to them. So let me leave this, that story for a moment. Take a breath and say, if you are ever in the city of Philadelphia, look up the Temple Baptist Church. Seating capacity of Temple Baptist is now 3,300 members. You can also see on the property Temple University where thousands of students are trained. And then you could go to the Good Samaritan Hospital there. And then you could come back to the Sunday School building which houses hundreds of Sunday schoolers so that no child in the area will ever need to be left outside during Sunday school. And if you go into the building, you'll go to one room and you'll see the picture of that sweet-faced little girl who saved 57 cents. It's a remarkable story. Now, I believe as we look for a new pastor and we look to see what God is going to do, that we have to make room for God to come in. You know, some of us are thinking, oh my gosh, there, there's so few of us now, and, and we can't possibly do something for God. And yet, he's willing to come in if we make room. Not our abilities, but our availability to him. So we're challenged by the little boy in the story, the gospel story, that we sacrificially offer what we have. It doesn't have to be that much. We're about to take communion in just a moment. And remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. He tells us to eat and drink, for he offers us forgiveness and joy and purpose for our lives. He gave his life so that we can have life. I ask you just one simple thing today. That today and this new year you would leave a little bit of room for God to do whatever he's going to do in your life. Because he will do something if you're available to him. Five loaves, 
two fish. Not a lot. But amazing amount if you're willing to give it. Or 57 cents given to God and God will take it from there. What are you going to offer God this year? Let's take a few moments of silence and, and pray and seek to hear from God what he needs or wants from us. Oh Lord, hear our prayers. Speak to us. Father in heaven, thank you for hearing our prayers. And I ask you to speak to each of us. Because sometimes we get confused and we, uh, we distracted and we, but we want to give to you. You're not asking for our whole checkbook. You're not asking for us to sell our house and move into something smaller so that we, you, no, you're not asking any of that kind of stuff. You're wanting to take and use us with our availability. Lord, speak to us. Thank you for your loving us and caring for us. And for this day, may we make a little room for you to do what you want to do in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.